Welcome to Fronteras, a program that explores issues at the border and beyond through the lens of arts, culture, and history. I'm Norma Martinez with Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. Today, we're going to hear more from a panel focusing on indigenous food and its influence on the Texas cuisine we enjoy today. The first part of the discussion is online at tpr.org and on the Fronteras podcast. The panel was recorded November 8th, 2023 at the Carlos and Malu Alvarez Theater at the TPR headquarters. On last week's episode, the panelists spoke broadly about how food connects with culture and how it's a way to fight the cultural erasure of indigenous populations, including those that have existed in the San Antonio and South Texas region for over 10,000 years, and why representation in major media outlets is important to setting the record straight about stereotypes that have existed for centuries. Our panelists, in the order you'll hear their voices, are Christine Ortega, a San Antonio businesswoman who served on the National Board for the Smithsonian Latino Center in Washington, D.C., chef, writer, and filmmaker Adan Medrano, Ramon Vasquez, executive director for the American Indians in Texas at the Spanish Colonial Missions, and San Antonio chef and activist Rebel Mariposa. Christine Ortega continues the conversation here, following up on having the right people in the right positions to correct the narrative. When you look at uh, the studies that were done, the research that was done by the Smithsonian through the 80s, 1980s, and they were trying to understand what was the dynamic, what was happening around the Latino culture, the American Latino in the United States. And they, after several years, printed a, a document called willful neglect. And that was the finding that this commission had about the Smithsonian's approach to people of color and to specifically to Latinos in the United States. And so fast forward now to where we do have the authorization of the Smithsonian, the National Museum for the American Latino, but it's still, it's still a dream because it doesn't exist yet. So we still continue to struggle with what Ramon describes as, you know, erasure, right? And and we get continue we continue to get that pushback. And so it is, at least from my perspective, very, very essential that I find belongingness when I'm here with my family. And that we all find it because collectively we still have a very strong voice. On that voice, I think I had said this before, but I, I would like to emphasize that. I think that's very important that it be our voice, that it be you know, Mexican. I would not have called myself Native American indigenous 35, 40 years ago. But now I do. I understand that that's the case. I didn't come from anywhere. My my ancestors have been here since the 10,000-year that history that you mentioned, that we've lived in this region. And the erasure has been by intent. In 1837... This is after, after the Alamo. The Republic of Texas has been founded. Sam Houston is the president. And there is a standing committee on Indian affairs in 1837. And the chairman writes this. This is in the, in the Texas papers that you can see in, in, uh, in archives. And it says, Mr. President, the people called Lipan, Karankawa, and Tonkawa, your committee considers as part of the Mexican nation and no longer to be considered as a different people. By design, the state erased my, our indigenous roots, and it is 
no no surprise that we have been erased from the general memory. And and I go back to what I say about publications. Our major publications do not have a Mexican-American writer about food. Texas Monthly, as I said before, uh, I think uh, the Dallas Morning News is going to get one. And uh, that's really important. We need, to, we need to be telling our own stories. Generational amnesia needs to be undone. And we have a question, comment. What's your first name? And fire away. Hi, I'm Leticia, uh, also from San Antonio, from the West Side. I, I have this story, and I never, ever thought of where I might share it and where I might get feedback on it because it was just a very big surprise to me. So I'm actually, my grandmother is from Mexico. She's from San Luis Potosí, a little town called Charcas. At 11 years old, she was sent to a relative to take care of her because it was the first pandemic, the Spanish flu pandemic. And so when she was caring for her, I mean, she was 11. She didn't know what to do. So she was sitting outside crying. And this lady saw this, my, my grandmother, who was 11 at the time, crying. She said, why are you crying? She says, because I'm taking care of this sick person, and I don't know what to do. But the lady comes back later on and had told my grandmother to grab all these ingredients. And what she did for the flu, the Spanish flu, is she used a masa to, to put over her body. And that was how she remedied the problem of the fever that she was having. But I had never heard that, and I'm wondering if anyone else has heard of it or knows any kind of stories where food's actually been used as medication. Well, I think just thinking about it, food, you know, if you start thinking about a tortilla and the smell and, you know, the cocina where your grandma, your mom's there cooking just that idea already puts a feeling in somebody's body. And, you know, food is definitely directly tied to healing, um, whether it's in the medicinal, it's medicinal value, because all foods have some type of medicinal value to us. They sustain us. They provide certain functions in our body. So uh, I think it's just recognizing the sacredness of the food, and maybe we approach it differently. And I think there's also um, the food that comes to mind with respect to healing is, you know, I have a, my favorite t-shirt says, I'm okay. Um, my grandma rubbed me with an egg. Um, so, I mean, I, you, you probably, you, nobody eats the egg afterwards. Nobody so, right? eats the egg. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so but, you know, by, by you all laughing, I think you understand how that egg is used, right? To, to make you feel better. Supposedly after somebody has looked at you a wrong way, you know, it's a whole ritual where you lie down and, and your, your elders, the women, right, predominantly women, would, would rub you with this egg on your body to, to take out any evil spirits or bad vibes or energy. And then they go through a whole praying service. Uh, you know, my take on it, part of that is, is that you have your mom touching your body. You know, it's like when they put the masa on somebody. It's just the act of, you know, soothing someone with food in that way. I think it's, it's how we channel our love sometimes with those foods. So it's, maybe it's not exactly that the masa absorbed the fever or that the egg absorbs the energy. Although you know what, it 
who's who's to know right there's still science out there being being made but the fact that we use food in that way to comfort and to share love is what heals us as individuals and as a community i think the paradigm reshift i would say is to to think of food food is healing period plants are healing period and it's not which ones are it's that it is. We don't need science to prove that either, right? Western science, we we already knew that. Yeah, I think it's just that shift of going, hey, this is healing. And but and also the cariño, the, the caring and the love that's put into it. You can make a meal with a lot of negative energy or a lot of, you know, anger and and pass that on to someone. Or that's what can. I think of when I see Hill's Kitchen. Everybody's right. so mad. I don't want to eat that food. Or these glorified shows where the, the the top chef is yelling at them. I would yeah, never want to eat their food either. Like that's a, even at Portanica. And then they're all smoking, yeah. you know, right. in the back. That would, yeah, you, if someone was having a bad day, I was, I'm like, get out of the kitchen, figure it out, go touch a tree, you know, drink some water, do whatever you have to do before you come back into this kitchen and make food for people because energy matters. Your thoughts matter. Your feelings, you know, they're important. You're listening to a panel discussion on the Native American influence on South Texas cuisine. You just heard from panelist Rebel Mariposa, a San Antonio native and founder of La Botanica, the first vegan restaurant in Texas to open with a full bar and menu. That restaurant closed in 2020 due to the pandemic. We also heard from Christine Ortega, the San Antonio businesswoman and community engagement strategist. From Ramon Vasquez, executive director for the American Indians in Texas at the Spanish Colonial Missions. And from Adan Medrano, a chef, writer, and filmmaker born in San Antonio. His books include Don't Count the Tortillas and Truly Texas Mexican, which is also the name of his 2021 acclaimed documentary. This panel was recorded November 8th, 2023 at the Texas Public Radio headquarters. It's edited for broadcast. When we come back, government policies and racism almost erased the traditional way of cooking that was prominent in the state. Tex-Mex was born from the original sin of driving out women in the center of San Antonio who were cooking traditional good food and they were chased away. Our conversation continues next on Fronteras. Welcome back to Fronteras. I'm Norma Martinez with Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. You're listening to a panel discussion on the indigenous food influence on South Texas cuisine. It was recorded in November 2023. Our panelists, in the order you'll hear them in this next excerpt, are chef, filmmaker, and author Adan Medrano, San Antonio businesswoman and community engagement strategist Christine Ortega, Ramon Vasquez, executive director for the American Indians in Texas at the Spanish Colonial Missions, and chef and activist Rebel Mariposa. Chef Adan Medrano says the healthy aspects of eating what you grew and cooked at home came to an end when government policies interfered. Diabetes, obesity, and and, and heart problems. And this is not to point the finger at individuals. This is policies and built environments that have taken us away from traditional cooking. And uh, Tex-Mex was born from the original sin of driving out women in the center of San Antonio, who were cooking traditional good food, and they were chased away. Men had access to capital, so they didn't have to put stands in the outer center. They could buy a place, brick and mortar, and actually sell food. They copied what the women did badly, and that's the birth, that's the original sin of Tex-Mex. 
And I, I mention that because if you point the finger at Mexican-Americans because we are obese, that, that has no meaning. Point the finger meaningfully at the institutions, the built environment. It's easier for HEB to package fast food that are bad for you. In, in, in communities that are poor, there are more fast food locations than others. We have to be looking at that, which means that we become political. But you're right, we're still here. And yeah. we are winning little by little. Yeah. One of the one of the analogies that I use when I think about the structure, you know, what is out there, right? There is no salad place that has uh, good salads in the West Side, right? So I'm thinking, hmm, how does that happen, right? So the analogy that I think of is musical chairs, you know, where you have like 10 people running around, the music's playing, everybody's having fun, having a good time, the music stops, and there's only eight chairs, doesn't matter how smart you are. Doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter, you know, how how quick you are or how strong you are. Somebody's not going to get a chair. This is what it's like in our food industry in many regards, because the industry is set up in such a way that we don't have the ability to do a fast food salad garden place. Why don't we have that? Right? Like, what are those choices that are out there for us? If if we have, you know, Taco Bell and Chili's and and McDonald's and all of these institutionalized places around us that are just so quick and easy and you're hungry, right? And you don't have time to make a home-cooked meal. You don't have time for a comida casera. What do we do? We need to be aware of what's around us and make the effort to nourish our bodies, but not abuse our bodies in the way that the institutions and our structures are set up with those musical chairs. And we have another question or comment really quickly. Hi. Um, sorry, I'm nervous. My name's Alejandro. So I heard y'all saying some really beautiful things about how we're hidden in plain view, how our history's been erased. And, and um, that's really what I'm trying to work through um, with myself personally, and I'm a teacher and with my students. And so what I was really um, wanting to hear more about was, when did it shift for you? So, Chef Adan, you said 20, 30 years ago, you would have never identified yourself as Kualitekin. So, if you could share, did, did it come from your home? Did it come from something external? Did something awaken inside? Just when did you start feeling this need to really combat the past and, and make things right? Thank you. Well, I can tell you that for me, I did not know that the world was not brown until I went away to college. And then I realized the world is really white. And so that became the first dissonant experience in my life. And so for me, every time I would feel uncomfortable about something, when I was in a business meeting, when I was in a boardroom, when I was making policies, you know, for other organizations, and I'm looking around and they're predominantly men, and they're all white, that's another dissonant point. So for me, it's just about recognizing that dissonance and accepting that it's real. It is real. So that there's no imposter syndrome that sneaks in that's saying, maybe I shouldn't be here. You know, where you just feel like you're not, you don't quite fit. That part, just get rid of it. It's, it's toxic. It's not anything that you need to spend any time on. As soon as you feel uncomfortable in that, you honor it, you recognize it, and you leave it there. For us, it was uh, 1967 when they um, dug up our Campos Santos, our cemeteries at Mission San Juan Capistrano. It was during that process between there and 1980 that um, the idea of 
indigenous people that came out of those missions here in San Antonio specifically were thought to be extinct. And that's where many of the families that I represent, you know, decided that they were going to reclaim their identity as Coahuitecans, as uh, indigenous families, as Aboriginal people. And that was in 1988 when it officially happened. So, um, yeah, it was, it takes something sometimes very tragic, something, you know, you gotta, you gotta get to a point of disgust. Yeah. And can I also just quickly interrupt? I mean, we, this is kind of on a different topic, but, um, Ramon, we've talked about this in the past that where we're sitting right now, this is a Campo Santo. Yeah. There are more than likely indigenous remains sure. right under where we're sitting right now. And that construction that you're seeing in Santa Rosa, Cesar Chavez, um, who knows what they're digging up with their uh, machines, if they even notice. So yeah. uh, we just want to uh, point that out, that this is where we're sitting right now. It is, it is sacred to be aware of that, I was aware of my indigenous character from birth. I mean, when I was very young, my mother in her mulcajete said to me, holding the, we call it bola in Spanish, she said, Este es tejolote. She used the native word for it. And from the very early days, I, I, that was part of me. And at one point, my father, who did a lot of farming or farm uh, work, gave a squash to me, una calabacita, and he says, esta es tatuma. Tatuma is the native word for the calabaza. So I always had that. But uh, it was not until later, 34, when, when I put it together in ways that, about, that I could write about it, because language was not in our favor. Do you have any comments, Rebel? Um, yeah, I think for me, it's a journey. I don't think that there was one moment where it was like, aha. I think that it's been this journey of, of um, decolonizing, de- rematriating, you know, um, undoing some things and re- and letting some things come to the surface. I mean, for me, like I, my great-grandmother, Loli, was a curandera, a Mexican healer, traditional healer and, and midwife. And when she passed, the night she passed, being as magical as she was, was the same night I was conceived. So I often have felt on this side that I'm a bit of a manifestation of that healing power that continues to go on. And I really honestly believe it was through her knowing that about how life moves and energy and, and passes. And so, but my family was, you know, uh, very more Catholic. And so she wasn't as honored as she should have been. She should have been extremely revered, but unfortunately, because of patriarchy as well, she wasn't. And so it was my aunts and my mother who would tell me stories and, and you know, and lifted her up and edified her in a way uh, that she should have been while she was still living. And so uh, my stepmother, Viviana Enrique, who is a danzante and capitana and also, you know, um, a big part of, of Chicano history you know, having her come into my life and, and reawakening some things, it was, you know, important in my, in me coming to terms with who I really am and my indigeneity and my power and, you know, going to college and going and, and being in Chicano, you know, study classes and Mexican American classes. And, you know, like you're saying the imposter syndrome, it's like, and so, yeah, maybe it's 2023 and I wish this happened, you know, um, in 1983, but it, it doesn't matter. It's happening now. And so whenever it does happen for us, for me, for all, any of us, um, it's beautiful. And, and timing is a construct. So just trust the timing of your life. 
Rebel Mariposa is a San Antonio chef and founder of La Botanica, a now-closed vegan, indigenous food-inspired restaurant that has transformed into a feminist-led culinary and wellness company. We also heard from Ramon Vasquez, member of the Tepilam Coahuiltecan Nation and executive director for the American Indians in Texas at the Spanish Colonial Missions. Also joining us was San Antonio businesswoman and community strategist Christine Ortega, a woman who continues the centuries-old male-dominated tradition of cooking a beef head in a pozo, a hole in the ground. And we also heard from Adan Medrano, a chef, filmmaker, and author whose books include Don't Count the Tortillas, and Truly Texas Mexican. His documentary, Truly Texas Mexican, explores comida casera, home cooking, while also documenting the erasure of Native American culture. Today's guests were all panelists on a November 8, 2023 panel called The Native American Influence on South Texas Cuisine. Today's episode was edited for broadcast. You can see video of the entire panel at tpr.org and on TPR's YouTube page. Thanks for joining us for Fronteras. Fronteras is produced by Norma Martinez and Marianne Navarro. Our executive producer is Dan Katz. Our editor is Fernando Ortiz Jr. Charanga Cakewalk composed our theme music. Hear past episodes at tpr.org and on the Fronteras podcast. I'm Norma Martinez with Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. <laughs>